Amen, that's right. We are on page, whatever page that is. What page is that? I don't know. Page two? Is that what it is? Uh, it, it's the second lesson. That's all I know, Tom. That's right. As we once again go to the world religions, the cults, and the occult is our study. But that's right. We made it through the introduction. Would you guys like to have a pause for a dramatic effect? We made it through. That was pretty exciting. Uh, but we are in lesson number two, and we are on the topic of Judaism. Okay, the Jewish people, and if you were here last time, we did, uh, did an extensive study on the history of the Jewish people. And uh, in fact, we broke out the manly man Las Vegas timeline, uh, if you were here, and we went through that baby and saw that the Jewish people are very important for understanding uh, what's going on today, but also God's plan for the ages. And the Jewish people are part of God's Genesis 3.15 promise. Okay, after Adam and Eve blew it, he was going to make it right. Well, he was going to have the seed of the woman, i.e. Jesus, crush the head of the serpent. So at some point in human history, he's going to have to raise up a people from whom this seed's going to come from, uh, ultimately Jesus, and that's the Jewish people, okay? And so we dealt with that in great detail. Then we saw some interesting things that God, he began to reveal this wonderful truth that, hey, he is holy, we are not because of the fall of mankind, but take heart, he's going to fix it, Genesis 3.15, okay? And we saw that God did that in different ways, and we saw that through the Ten Commandments, and they were not... A means to try to earn your way to heaven because we can't they were there to expose our need of a savior we can't even keep these 10 things okay and what's the message that god's trying to get through our heads he's holy we're not clean unclean right that's what he's trying to teach mankind then we saw of course with the symbolism with the tabernacle and the temple even the way that thing was structured pointed to jesus christ okay you had to go through the gate the the labor of cleansing the altar of sacrifice the table of showbread the lights etc the veil was torn to the holy of holies etc and even the dietary laws what were there yes there was a certain practical side to them uh, it's not a good idea to try to eat pork when you have no refrigeration in the desert there is that aspect as well as seafood okay but it was also again to draw a distinction to make the jewish people the object lesson to the world now not just these lessons for the jewish people but the jewish people would be different they would draw a distinction in how they lived and follow god that they are clean and the world is unclean okay and you had to come god's way only one way uh, to get that remedied okay but now we are into the aspect of the reality is found in christ and i want to start there that's kind of where we left off last time to grab the theme because we're going to build on it then we're going to get into hopefully uh, why the jewish people are important for today okay the jewish people are important to understand god's fulfilling his promise of genesis 3 15 fixing the fall of mankind giving us the ability to get out of it through jesus christ but if you want to understand how close he's getting ready to come back again not just his first coming, his second coming. You better pay attention to what's going on right now with the Jewish people. All right, but Colossians chapter two, let's open there and let's take a look at it again as God progressively uh, shares this information, okay? Uh, what's the whole purpose of it? It's to point our need of a savior, it's to point the way to Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter two, verses 16 through 17. Let's take a look at what's going on uh, in this symbolism, Okay. And this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, okay? Or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or uh, of a Sabbath day. Remember, that was all the Jew Jewish law and the things of the nature there that, uh, and that we don't follow anymore. Well, why? Well, he tells us why. He says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in who? Jesus Christ. These were object lessons from God to point at our way and our need. And that is we need somebody to save us from this dilemma that God is holy, that we are not, that God is clean, that we are unclean, etc., etc. Now, uh, paragraph two. 
is where we're at. It says, remember one important thing, just because the Old Testament was progressive, God reveals these things in stages, okay? It does not mean that he was wrong in any way. Hello, he's God. He doesn't get anything wrong. There is simply development is your first blank there. Development is all that's going on there. And he gives you an analogy. The standards of morality established in the Old Testament were totally refined in Jesus. God gave man a progressive revelation. The distinction is not in the nature of the truth. It's in the amount of time of it. For instance, children are taught first letters, then they worry about the words, and then the sentences, right? There's a logical progression to go. With a kid that's two years old, do you just hand them a book on calculus and say, go to it? Typically, no, okay? Uh, maybe there's a prodigy they can do it. I don't know. But typically, no. There's a stage you go. And that's what we see with God, right? He, he just, he gives it into bite-sized pieces to teach us a lesson. And ultimately, the whole thing is to culminate into the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, Jesus Christ, okay? But let's continue on, is what he says. He says this. Now, his spelling book began with types and ceremonies, right? And that's what we saw with types, Ten Commandments, Dietary laws, ceremonies, the, the whole priesthood, the tabernacle and the temple, and of course prophecies, okay, and progress to the final completion in Jesus Christ. Now, this is also important in understanding why there's certain things in the Bible, even though they're recorded in the Bible, we do not follow today. Do you realize that? Because people say, well, it's written in the Bible, I guess we're going to have to do it. Really? The Bible says Judas went and hung himself. How many guys say that's a good thing to do? No, it's not. But that's what it says in the Bible. So, so that's what's called wooden-headed literalism. We need to take the Bible literally, but that's what's called wooden-headed literalism. You have to understand the context. Also, the covenant context. Old covenant, Old Testament, or new covenant, New Testament. And what happens is you'll have New Testament so-called Christians who take Old Testament covenant commands and they say, well, you got to do them today. No, not necessarily. Okay, and that's because there were three different kinds of laws I want to share with you real quick uh, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, okay? Three different types. Let me share those with you real quick. And the first one is civil, okay? The civil laws that are mentioned in the uh, Old Testament, okay? The civil laws are no longer in effect. And the reason why they're no longer in effect was because that was the Jewish theocratic governmental system. That's how they governed their uh, uh, people of that day, okay? And... Uh, but do we follow the Jewish government system today? No, nobody sneezes that. Now, it's recorded for us in the Old Testament, why? Because that's what it was for those people at that time, and God records it. Just because the Bible records something also doesn't mean that it's necessarily, again, a good thing to do, okay? The Bible is so authentic that the Bible records everything, good, bad, and ugly. The Bible records people not just always doing everything right, but what? Doing things wrong. And to me, that's what adds also to the authority and the authenticity of the scripture because if the Bible, as the critic would say, is a book whooped up by man, I'm not going to write in there David's account with Bathsheba because I want him to come out shining to the top. He's perfect. He's right. But how many guys were encouraged? Nobody's condoning sin. God never condones sin. But how many guys are glad that God put that in there because it tells us that, you know what? God can still use you even when you blow it. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? But see, the, again, that just shows that God, he's recording. But just because it's recorded in the Bible doesn't mean it's for today. It doesn't mean that it's a good thing to emulate. No, it's recorded in there. So you have to understand what's called the context, the historical context, the, the covenantal context, okay? And this is one of the issues, civil law. Now, let me bring out a couple examples of the civil law. Now, according to the Jewish governmental system back in that day, and it's recorded for us in the Bible, okay, under that system of law, uh, when somebody committed homosexuality or adultery, they were killed, right? Now, this is why we don't do that today. 
because covenantly we are no longer under the Jewish civil laws. Okay, and this is also why when you read in the New Testament, Jesus, he freed the woman who was caught in adultery, contrary to what the people wanted to do. Remember, they wanted to kill her, right? So she committed sin. Okay, but here's the point. But what did Jesus tell her? Okay, see you later. Go and, right? So he still can, why? Because the, the laws, we'll get to this in a second. This is down here, number three. The laws that are based on God's character, the moral laws, those are still in effect today. And we'll get to that in a second. But the civil laws, how to deal with the violation of the moral laws, we don't follow it anymore. So, so anyway, so even though these civil laws, put them to death, put them to death, right? We don't follow that anymore, number one, okay? And again, when people don't understand this, they say, well, it's there in the Bible, I guess we better do it today. And then it's just like, you, are you serious, right? And it makes the rest of us look like some uh, goobers. But the next one uh, is what's called the ceremonial laws. Now, this is all, and it's recorded in the Bible, right? And this is typically a lot of the stuff with the, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, and all the sacrificial system and all that stuff, including also with the dietary laws. You can't eat pork, you can't eat shellfish, and all this other stuff that's going on there. And this is an important thing to understand that we don't follow today because as we saw last time, <clears throat> who's our high priest? Jesus, right? And the high priest under the system, again, what was the whole point of that? It's pointing to Jesus, that we needed somebody to go before us to sprinkle blood to cover our sins to be forgiven and acceptable to God, to bring us into the holy place, the actual presence of God. Who does that? Jesus. What's the writer of Hebrews says? He does it every year, like the Old Testament law? No, he did it once for all, to forever cleanse, once and for all. Praise God for that, amen, right? So guess what? It's not repeated. So guess what? You don't need to follow that. That's why we don't bring sheep in here and sacrifice every week. That's why we don't build a temple and have to go through all these rituals and this, and we don't have to keep that festival. We don't worship on the Sabbath and all that stuff on Saturday. And that's a whole other thing. We'll wait till we get to that. I can't wait to get that Seventh-day Adventism because of what's going on in politics right now. Anyway, wow. I'm just waiting. Anyway, can we talk about that just for a second? I got to because we may not get there by the time the election's over, right? And we talk about the Seventh-day Adventism. I, I, this is a crone theory. I'm not going to say this is going to happen. But, of course, Ben Carson's rising up. And I don't have a problem with Ben Carson. I think he's got some great ideas and all that stuff. My problem is, <clears throat> if you notice the last election, uh, Romney made the ticket. Remember that? Okay. Now, Romney, as soon as he made the ticket, I said, well, we're done. Okay. No, seriously. Because Romney's a Mormon. Right? And it's going to divide the Christian community. And it did. And so it never even came close to even carrying because Christians going, I can't vote for a Mormon. Because when you understand this, we're going to get what Mormons really believe in that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan, that there's three celestial kingdoms that you can work your way. It's a works-based salvation, which is not salvation. It's anathema, right? And that, that you get to become gods and your wife gets to become a goddess and forever populate planets, right? My wife don't want to do that. Two kids is enough. But anyway, so, you know, but it's, but no, seriously, right? I mean, and that's the tip, of the tip of the iceberg. So most equipped Christians are going to, oh, I can't vote for that guy. And sure, pfft. well, I'm just waiting for the cat to come out of the bag when it comes with Ben Carson, whether he uh, overtakes Trump and gets on the ticket or becomes even as a, uh, a forerunner. My, I'm sitting here going like, oh, no, man, are you serious? Is this going to be another, is this going to be another Romney, right? Because when you understand what Seventh-day Adventists really believe, we're, it, it, and I'm sitting there going, oh, the media's got to know this. They must be sitting on this, waiting for the right time to pull these out because as soon as they release what these people really believe, you're done. You're done. Things like you and I worshiping on Sunday is the mark of the beast. They deny the existence of a literal hell. They believe in what's called annihilationism. You just poof, cease to be. What? 
I mean, these are serious differences. And they also believe <clears throat> that in the latter times that the government is going to force people to worship on Sundays enforcing, if you will, the mark of the bees. They're going to have a laughing stock with this, right? And I'm saying, why hasn't this come out yet? So anyway, this is a little chrome theory. Let's move on. Uh, anyway, they're saving it for the appropriate time. I don't know. We'll find out. Okay. But anyway, politically, I think there's some great stuff. I just think, unfortunately, there's some baggage there that they're could blow up in your face but anyway unfortunately uh, but anyway so back to the ceremonial laws okay this is why we don't eat uh uh we we can eat shellfish today okay uh yeah <laughs> right and uh uh but this is why we can no let me give it you better get a bigger yay on this one this is why we can eat pork how many guys like bacon wrapped bacon with bacon juice and bacon bits on top you know what i'm saying praise god that's right. <laughs> Very, woo, yeah, buffet time, bro. So anyway, <laughs> all right. All right, so that's why. It's not because, you know, because people say, well, it says in the Bible you can't do that. Well, listen, you don't understand. We don't follow the ceremonial laws because Jesus fulfilled that. He's our high priest once and for all. All right, so don't, and even, but Christians will go, have you noticed Christians, oh, I can't eat pork, or I, I got to worship on the Saturday, or, or I got to keep the Jewish festivals if I really want to be a messianic What? No. Okay, no. Now, uh, and this is important when it comes to even modern issues, because believe it or not, those who are trying to get us to accept uh, homosexuality as an appropriate behavior instead of a sinful behavior, okay, use this line of argument. And they'll say, well, wait, wait a second. The Bible says in the Old Testament that shellfish is an abomination. The Bible also says that homosexuality is an abomination. Same word. So if you can eat shellfish today, what's their logical thing? They said then homosexuality is okay. No. You're misunderstanding the ceremonial laws, okay? Uh, the prohibition against eating shellfish and pork uh, is under the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws. We don't follow those today, okay? And this is why in the book of Acts that God gave Peter the vision of the sheet with the animals and said that everything's clean. Why? Because we're not under that. We don't follow the Jewish theocratical governmental system, the civil laws. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws, but guess what is still, here's the point, still in force today, that's your third category, and that's the moral laws. And that would be things like the Ten Commandments. That would be things uh, like uh, what is mentioned in the scripture, uh, homosexuality and adultery, etc. Those are still in effect today. Why? Now, not the punishment and the civil laws, but you still, as a moral behavior, shouldn't do those things. Why? Because the moral laws are based on God's character, and that doesn't change. And that's why you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament phrases by God saying, be ye holy because I am holy. He wants us to emulate his character. Why? Because again, as we saw last time, what's the giant object lesson? God is holy. We are not. We're in a heap of trouble. We need savior, right? It points to Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. That's why we keep his moral laws, not because we're trying to earn a way to heaven, Praise God, that's already been complete and done with Jesus Christ because we can't keep it. But we want to emulate him to be the object lesson like the Jewish people were supposed to be to the nations to draw that distinction. God is holy, we are not. I.e. God's people are holy, you are not. You got a problem. Right, what are you gonna do? And we lead them to Jesus, right? But they're based on his character. Plus, uh, if you pick out one moral prohibition, i.e. in this case, homosexuality, and you're gonna say, well, that's okay, then you got to be consistent. You can't just pick one and say it's okay. Then that means all of them are okay, if that's your line of thinking, which means now you're going to say that murder, stealing, lying, adultery, bestiality, incest, sacrificing your children to idol, all the things mentioned in the moral law, those must be okay too. 
And that's ludicrous, okay? So that's the issue. But that's what is going on here, and that's what I say. All this, okay, you need to understand what's going on here because people will try to apply this today and they miss the whole point and the whole purpose. Okay, the reality is found in Jesus Christ. Of the three, the only one that remains today is the moral laws mentioned in the Old Testament. Let's continue on. The worship of Yahweh, okay, is the oldest universe religion as angels worship God before the creation of the world. Now, the reason why that's important to know, because you will have people say, well, uh, you guys keep quoting the Bible, but you know the Chinese people were in existence long before the Bible came about, and, or, or the Sumerians, or all these, you know, they pick a culture. So, well, excuse me? Remember the timeline? I wasn't going to bring it out again today, because we didn't get very far after I went through it. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, so, but basically you have a creation, Adam and Eve, right? Then you have the, the days of, of, of Noah there, and then, of course, you had the flood, right? And then you had uh, probably around 1,600, 1,700 years of existence, roughly, uh, as people would state. Uh, and then you had the flood, okay? But then after that, you had uh, mankind starting all over again. And shortly after that, you got Genesis chapter 11, and that's the Tower of Babel, okay, with that. And people once again rebelled against God. So what did God do? He confused the language, as, and he scattered the people at that point all over the world, okay? So that's where you had the birth of the Chinese people, and Sumerians, the Egyptians, and on and over, eventually made it over to you know, South America and the other uh, continents and things of that nature as well. That's where that started. But l- l- how much time was there before that ever came into existence? So who's really the oldest? So don't fall for that baloney that the Chinese ruled. No, it's, it's back here. And that's what he's talking about here is Yahweh. Now, Yahweh, okay, is this, this word, Yah, okay, way, okay. Now, actually, it's called the, you, you want your big theological term? The Tetragrammaton. Sounds like a transformer. But that's not what it is, Reed. I know what you're thinking. Okay. (laughs) The Yahweh, it means four letters. Okay, Tetragrammaton. Okay, because in the original Hebrew, there were no vowels. It was just Y-H-W-H, right? You know why they decided to put uh, vowels in there? Try pronouncing that. It just, I don't know, free speak aloud. But anyway, that's what it is. That's the original four letters. Now, the point is, and that's why it says Yahweh worship, because that is the uh, most repeated frequent name in the Old Testament. Yahweh, okay, is repeated 6,828 times. 700 times just in the book of Psalms alone. Okay, the shortened form of Yah, Yah, and sometimes also pers- uh, appears as Yah, like that, same thing, the same root of this. Okay, that's where we get hallelujah. Yah, okay, which means you are to praise the Lord. It's a command. Uh, hey, hallelujah. Right? You use it for like that. But that's what it means, okay, is used there. Now, and basically what the word means, okay, <clears throat> is that it's a, a reference to when God appeared on the scene, okay, to Moses. And he says, he says, who am I going to tell the people? I am that I am. Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, okay, that the Lord just is. He, okay, and, and then Jesus appears on the scene. Why did they want to kill him? Because he, and they knew what he was talking about. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He went right back to this. And that's why they wanted to kill him because they, they knew what he was talking about. People were like, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, just what? He specifically called it out and said he was, all right? And the same thing that's going on there, okay, uh, is what's going on. Now, your English Bibles, they don't use the word Yahweh typically, okay? When it comes across in your English Bibles, it's usually like this. If you notice it, it's all in caps, Lord, okay, right? And, uh, but that's typically, that's, that's Yahweh. Now, you also see a smaller one, Lord, that's from another Hebrew word called Adonai, 
Okay, but to distinguish between Adonai and Yahweh, Yahweh is always the big giant, uh, capital one. So there's your little exciting Hebrew lesson for today with Yahweh. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme, for those of you paying attention. Uh, let's move on. But it's the oldest universe religion. All right, therefore, it's the oldest religion that dates to the creation of mankind, the sixth day of the creation week. The worship of Yahweh does not equate to Judaism since it's worshipped him before the beginning of Judaism. Okay, in other words, it didn't start when the Jewish people popped on the scene. How long has it been going on? From the very beginning. It's the oldest, right? Now, later, of course, Yahweh, God, you know, gave his law to the Jewish people and stuff, but it didn't start with the Jewish people. And that's what he gives the examples here with Noah and certainly Enoch, okay? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Uh, gird up the loins like a man, and I'll ask you and instruct, you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? Or what were the bases sunk? Or who laid his cornerstone? How many guys just say Job's in trouble? You ever have your dad give you one of those talks? Were you here when I built this house from scratch and I made this car payment and you did this and I bought your clothes and the soap and blah, blah, blah. Okay, maybe it was just me and Reed, but let's move on. When the morning stars uh, sang together, all the sons of God, the angels, shouted for joy. So even before mankind showed up on the scene, with the creation of the angels, were worshiping Yahweh. Okay, it's the first and it's the oldest, okay? Judah's beginning traced the covenant relationship with God initiated by Abraham in 2091 B.C., later, Okay, uh, God's covenant choice continued along Abraham's line, obviously through Isaac and Jacob. Why? Because what did he say? It's all, as we saw last week, if you're here, it's all fulfilling the promise. The Bible will not make total sense until you understand what's going on. After the fall of man, God made a promise. I tell you what, you blew it. I could nuke the planet and start all over, but I'm merciful and compassionate. I tell you what I'm going to do. One day, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to undo the damage that was just done by the devil. And eventually, that's the whole story all the way through the Old Testament and the fulfillment of Jesus in the New Testament on up to today. It's all God fulfilling that promise, okay? But he rose, he started with the Jewish people. And that's what he says. The Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your own country. He's putting it into action after all these years now. He's raising up a man. And from that man would come the, Jesus, but I mean the Jewish people. And then out of the Jewish people would come the Messiah, Jesus, okay? Uh, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how? Well, who's coming from the Jewish people? Genesis 15, 315 promise, Jesus, the Messiah, right? But God said, uh, no, but Sarah is your blank there. Now, in case you guys don't realize this, uh, from this point forward, any time in this whole study, uh, my guess is uh, anywhere where this word Sarah uh, uh, is, appears, you're going to have to fill that in. And the reason why is because, that's right, it was Bill Wimbley's daughter, Sarah, who is the one who put this thing together. She's so awesome. She thought ahead. She made us think of her. Isn't that special? Hello, Sarah. Right, right. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I'll establish my covenant with him uh, for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Next page. As God progressively revealed more information about himself and his relationship to his chosen people. Again, why were they chosen? He could have picked anybody. He just started with Abraham, or Abram later changed Abraham, his name. Okay, 
and, and that because he's fulfilling Genesis 3.15. He gave the descendants the Abrahamic, uh, of Abraham the Mosaic covenant through Moses. This covenant provided the rules that God expected his chosen people to live by, i.e. the law. Why? Because they're trying to earn their way to heaven. No. And this is another important thing I don't think we, we got to deal with last time. And people say, well, did they get saved in a different manner? No, it's always been by faith. You look at the beginning and the end. You look at the uh, uh, timeline here, the cross with the centerpiece, the Old Testament, the New Testament, you and I, right? They look forward in faith to God's provision. It's always been faith as means. It's never been by works. That's why Paul says Abraham was justified by faith, right? Clearly, it's by you and I, we look backwards to the cross, to the Messiah, to God's provision in faith. It's always been by faith, okay? There's never been a different way uh, uh, to be saved and justified before God because it's impossible, okay? This covenant provided the rules that God expected for his chosen people to live by. And again, the object lesson there to be different as the scripture uses peculiar people, right? The world's like, what's up with you guys? And we say, us clean, you unclean, right? God clean, you no clean, right? Heap of trouble, Messiah. Okay, anyway, let's move on. Uh, that's the, and the basis for the religion of Judaism. Ultimately, the purpose of the law was to what? Earn your way to heaven? No, it's never meant to be that. To be a tutor to show us that they are all, including the Jewish people, because they couldn't keep it, and they needed some, a blood sacrifice, they needed somebody to intercede for them, are sinful and in need of a savior. And this is what we see in Galatians 3. That's quoted there for us. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to what? To Christ. Why is it every Sunday morning, by and large, after I get done preaching, what am I saying? You need to get saved. No, it's not just that. Okay, that's the start. Then I begin to explain. What? What do I typically start off with? Hey, Ten Commandments. Why the Ten Commandments? Because what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Man, they look nifty on that wall. You must be spiritual. Right? <laughs> you know, look, they're even, you even have them on your desk at work. Wow. Now, a lot of people do that. No. Right? They were God's x-ray to show us, you can't even keep these ten things. He's holy, you're not. Right? And that, so that's why it revealed. So that's, because that's what people need still today. Need to understand. And typically start off with the ninth one. You shall not bear false witness, lying. Have you ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Liars. Right? You shall not steal. Anybody ever take anything without permission? Go ahead and raise your hand. Now everybody's hand should have went up because you just told me you're a bunch of liars. Right? So... <laughs> Right? And on and on it goes, right? Did, did you use the Lord's name in vain? Yeah, just keep it up. Yeah, just get it, prop it up. You got a two by four or something? Just, yeah. Right? <laughs> right. So, but anyway, go on the list, right? It's, it's right. It's, it's God, God's trying to get us to admit what he already knows. God, I can't even keep these 10 things, man. You could have given me a list of 100. I can't even keep the first one. Worship only God. And so what's the logical conclusion? What do people need to understand? What's the ultimate crux of the dilemma? I'm not worthy to get to heaven. I need a savior. That's what he says. It, the law was to lead us to Christ. The Ten Commandments were never a means to earn our way to heaven because we couldn't. It was to show our inability to get there and that we would cry out, oh God, please help me. If only somebody could save me from this dilemma. That was the purpose of it. Okay, so that we may be justified by faith, okay, in God's provision, just like in the Old Testament. But now faith has come and we're no longer under a tutor, i.e. in Jesus. For you are all sons of God through who? Faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All you baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That's our covering now. Okay, that's what we're trusting uh, in, in God. But 
said all that to get to that, so we finished that aspect up. That is the importance of the Jewish people, the history aspect. Lord willing, the rest of the study kind of gets into modern Judaism, okay? What about the Jewish people today? And that's kind of a neat thing. I can't wait to, Lord willing, start 18,322 to get to, because uh, I want to get some other stuff first. <clears throat> because a lot of people think that the Jewish people, that they're all, you know, the religious, orthodox Jewish people. That's not true. That they're all over there at the Wailing Wall with the little Goldilocks with all due respect. No, that's not true. Israel, just like America, is extremely secular. Uh, Israel, right now, believe it or not, uh, is one of the big promoters of, of the homosexual movement, gay pride parades. Israel, right? It's just, right? And that's important to note, right? And we know spiritually Israel is going to be, uh, in, in fact, Revelation even equates uh, Jerusalem, Israel, over there, uh, figuratively as Sodom. Whoa. And it's interesting, they're starting to repeat that of all places, right? So we need to dispel this mindset that anybody over there in Israel is just some religious, that's not true. Again, the same misconceptions over here that Europeans do to Americans. Oh, you American, you must be a Christian. And we laugh at that, right? Yeah, I wish it was true, but it's not. But they don't know. So we do the same thing. But we'll get into secular Judaism. And it is a system of works. Man's traditions, rituals, like today, lost as a goose. They need to get saved by God's grace just like the rest of us. Okay, but we'll get that. But before we get there, we just spent basically a week and a half, okay, dealing with the Jewish people, the history of them, and the importance of Jesus' first coming, right? It's all to point us to Christ. Well, guess what? If you want to understand, we don't know the day nor the hour, but if you want to understand how close we're getting to the second coming, guess what? Go back to the Jewish people. God's wired this into the Old and New Testament as well. If you want to know how close we are to the second coming of Jesus Christ, you better pay attention to the Jewish people, okay? And so that's what I want to deal with uh, uh, tonight. Uh, and, and the reason why is because if you read the scripture, uh, Jerusalem basically, if you will, is like the center of the earth, at least from uh, God's viewpoint. This is where the line of the Messiah started. This is where David, uh, King David ruled from there. This is where Jesus, the actual Messiah, died on the cross. This is where the end times culminate at the Battle of Armageddon just outside of Jerusalem. This is where Jesus returns at his second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. This is where Jesus rules and reigns during the millennial kingdom after he comes back at his second coming. So if you want to know how close we're getting to the end of these prophetic events in the last days, guess where you need to pay attention to? Jerusalem and the Jewish people and then if you look at the scripture you're going to see that God wired in the Jewish people and the things that are going to happen to them to give us triggers that man again we don't know the day of the hour but it is getting close when you see these triggers popping off man it's getting close to the second coming of Jesus Christ again uh, but let's take a look at that now first one the big one is when you see this happen man it is getting close uh, the Bible prophesied uh, centuries and centuries ago that the Jewish people would return to the land. Okay, is the first one. And too bad we don't see any signs of that. Yeah, it happened in 1948. Isaiah 43 says this, 5 and 6, Don't be afraid, for I'm with you. I'll bring your children from the east. I'll gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up, and to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Okay? Now, what's interesting is ever since the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., by the Romans there, 70 AD, the Jewish temple was destroyed, okay? And the Jewish people just went through a horrible slaughter. If you ever want to read how bloody, horrific, and what a judgment that was from God, why? Because Jesus prophesied that would happen. Remember that? Remember Matthew 24, before Jesus goes into the signs of his second coming, right? And talk about wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and deceit, 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 and all that stuff, you know? 
And he talks about not one, he's pointing towards the temple that was built in the day. He says, not one stone here is going to be left unturned. And that actually was fulfilled in great detail because after the Romans destroyed the city, they burned the temple. The temple, if you understand the temple, had lots of gold in it. Gold on the walls, gold in the or everywhere. So guess what? When it got heated up, guess where the gold went? Went into the rocks. Guess what the Romans did to get all the gold? Tore up the stones, right? Exactly what Jesus prophesied uh, would happen. But that was an act of judgment, okay? And that happened in 70 AD. Now, the Jewish people, uh, a remnant of them, went up, you know, and hid out uh, in Masada in that area over there, but eventually they got them all and that was it. So basically from 70 AD-ish, uh, when the temple was destroyed and thereafter, the Jewish people were scattered. That's it. Ceased to be wandering here, wandering there. Okay, and this is what's interesting. Now, the Bible says that in the last days, you're going to see all of a sudden the Jewish people come back to the land. Okay, but the Bible didn't just say they're going to come back from the land. The Bible says, according to this passage, they're going to come specifically from the east, the west, the north, and the south in that exact order. And guess what happened? That's exactly what happened. Yeah, they first started going back to the land in the mid-1900s, okay, uh, in the early 1900s uh, from the east and they began to move back to Israel. Then from the west in the mid-1900s, hundreds of thousands of the Jewish people in the west in Europe, the United States began to go back. Then from the north in the 1980s, they began to come down from Russia, okay, hundreds of thousands. Then from the south, uh, Israel struck a deal with Ethiopia's communist government and on the weekend of May 25th, 1991, Ethiopian Jews are airlifted to Israel and from still this year, all on forward, they still keep coming back every year. And they came back, not just to the land, they came back in the exact order that God prophesied from the east, the west, the north, and the south. That's gonna happen when you're in the last days. It's already happened. We don't know the day nor the hour, but it's getting close. The second thing that the Bible says, you know, pay attention to Jewish people, is they're not just gonna come back to the land. They're going to become a nation again. Okay, and this is what we see in Isaiah 11. In that day, the Lord will bring back a remnant of his people for a second time, returning them from the land of Israel, from Assyria, Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, Ethiopia, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, and all the distant coastlands. He will raise a flag among the nations that, uh, for Israel to rally around. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. Now, ever since 721 B.C., okay, B.C., 14 different people have possessed the land of Israel. But according to the Bible, according to Isaiah, we're going to see that, believe it or not, against all odds, the people who are no people are not just going to come back to the land, but they're going to be self-governing. They're going to become a nation again. Okay, and again, what happened on May 14th, 1948? The Jewish people became a nation again, right? Huge, massive thing. I mean, about all, and then in 1967, I believe they even took over and regained Jerusalem as well, okay? This is exactly what needs to happen before Jesus comes back. Guess what? It's already happened. Okay, the nation. Now, not only a nation, but this Bible also says that they would become specifically a nation in one day. Isaiah 66. Who has ever heard such a thing? Anything as strange as this? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pains begin, the baby will be born, the nation will come forth. So at May 14th, 1940, at specifically 4 p.m., 4 p.m., Okay, the members of the People Council signed the proclamation and a declaration was made, and I quote, the state of Israel is established. This meeting is ended. Israel not only became a nation, and you think about it, I mean, how long does it take for the government to do anything? Let's close in prayer, right? No, Israel didn't just become a nation. They became a nation literally in one day, in one moment, exactly 4 p.m. Exactly like it was prophesied, okay? 
In fact, many of the people, if you look at some of the old footage when they did that, they're weeping and crying. They're not saved. But it was such a prophetic spiritual event that they knew something special just took place. Something unheard of. The people who are no people who have been scattered for century upon century, ever since the destruction of the temple, all of a sudden they came back to the land in the exact order, were a nation again, and it happened just like that. Even they knew something special just took place. And how many of us just like, oh yeah, Israel. Right? Okay, fourth one is they would become a united nation. Now, this is really big, okay? Uh, scripture talks about this in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. And give them this message from the sovereign Lord. I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them to their homeland from the places where they have been scattered. I will unify them into one nation in the land. Okay, uh, one king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations. Now, the reason why this is huge is because, again, if you remember the manly man timeline from last week, live from Vegas, uh, we saw that eventually, even though God started with Abram, later Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons to, to the 12 tribes, and the Jewish people, and, and, and King David, and, and Solomon, all that. But after Solomon uh, left the throne, died, whatever, guess what happened? Kingdom split. That was 926, about 926 B.C. And they stayed split. 926 B.C., they became a divided nation. You had the 10 northern tribes went north, okay, Israel. You had the southern two tribes uh, called Judah, okay? So the Jewish people were a split nation for, listen, 2,900 years. But the Bible predicted that they would come back not only to the land and in an exact order, they would become a nation again, a nation in one day, and they would be united again for the first time in 2,900 years. Did you know that's already happened too? Same thing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Now, another thing, we're getting some specifics there, is their currency. The Bible even calls out their currency, that their currency would be the shekel. Okay? This is Ezekiel 45, 12, 13, and 16. The standard unit for weight will be the silver shekel. This is the tax you must give the prince. All the people of Israel must join the prince in bringing their offerings. And the passage here is talking about a rebuilt Jewish temple, okay? There's going to be a temple during the millennial kingdom. Now, a lot of people who want to deny the literal millennial kingdom, which is after Jesus, the second coming, he comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the battle of Armageddon puts that down, shortly after establishes the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. There's going to be a temple during that time. A lot of people who want to deny that we should take that as a literal millennium they want to spiritualize it as well as much what goes on in Revelation is because of this very issue. They say, hey, well, wait a second. We just went through this whole talk that we don't need to do the Jewish sacrifices anymore. You're right. And it says, well, how can I take this as literal from Ezekiel, okay, and other passages if they're gonna do a temple and do sacrifices again? Because it's not for the forgiveness of sins. The millennial temple and the sacrifices is to remember. It's a remembrance. And that's nothing strange. You still take it literally because do we do anything right now today to remember something that happened 2,000 years ago? Yeah, the first one's called communion. Now, the Catholics would falsely teach that that turns into the actual body and the actual... No, it doesn't because that means he's being sacrificed over and over again. That's anathema. That's, that's, that's blasphemy. Jesus died once for all. Okay, but communion, the bread and the wine, okay, or the Southern Baptist version the cracker 
and the grape juice, whatever, okay, is symbolic. But why do we do it? In fact, with Jesus, his own words in 1 Corinthians 11, what does he say? Do this in remembrance of me. Baptism, what's baptism? We do this the same thing. Baptism saves you. You got to be, but no, it doesn't. It's in remembrance. It's identifying. It's symbolic. It's symbolic of what? Identifying with the death and burial of Jesus Christ, being cleansed from your sins, being raised to a new life with Jesus Christ, right? Right? It doesn't save you. It's symbolic. So the, the temple, it's a literal temple. It's a literal millennium. Jesus is literally ruling and reigning. There's literally going to be peace on the planet, even peace with nature. It's awesome. Yeah. You don't need to spiritualize it. But yes, the temple is not for the means of salvation because salvation has never changed. It's always been by faith. Rather, it's remembrance. And you know why God does these things? Because you know what we have a horrible habit of doing? Forgetting. Forgetting. And I really think that uh, <clears throat> maybe after a thousand years of the millennial kingdom and Jesus is right there ruling and reigning. See, right now we've got to do the invisible thing. But they're going to see him ruling and reigning on the planet. Right? And they're going to have this annual reminder. It now, it doesn't save you, but just like we have a reminder, right? And they're going to forget, right? Because it's always been that way. You ever notice that some people just get this kind of, eh, they're going through the motions when they take communion. There's no big deal to get baptized, right? Even we do the same thing today. We, we, we minimize it. And so I think, unfortunately, the same thing's going to happen, even though God's given them a reminder, don't forget, Right? Because eventually another generation is going to grow up. They're not going to know anything about the seven-year tribulation. Right? They might hear stories about it, but they didn't experience it because they were part of a different generation. They're going to forget. Right? And unfortunately. But anyway, so that's, that's it. But I said all that to get to this. That was the, I want to explain that. Because a lot of people say, oh, what do you mean? Anyway. So the shekel. So they're going to use the shekels. Okay? During that time frame. Okay? Now, here's the problem. Israel's currency when they came back to the land was the British pound. Uh-oh. So what are you going to do? Well, it just so happened, and guess what happened in 1980? They changed to the shekel, and they still use the shekel today. Just in time for the Millennium Kingdom. And all that stuff, very interesting. The sixth one, this might be the last one we're going to get to tonight. We've got a ton more to go. Okay, is they're going to blossom. Okay, Israel's going to blossom as a rose, specifically a flower, in the desert. Okay, and this is what we see in Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. Even the wilderness will rejoice in those days. The desert will blossom with flowers. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel's pastures and the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. Okay, so what we see here is the significance of this is you have to understand the historical significance of the land of Israel. Okay, from the very beginning, God wanted to bless his children. When they came out of Egypt, they were in slavery, they were in bondage, right? They were under the Pharaoh, it was his land, it was his property. So God said, I'm going to call you out, and I'm not just going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a promised land. And this wasn't just some generic land, the Bible says it was a good land. The Bible says that the promised land was specifically a good land 16 different times in the Old Testament. And specifically, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I know that might sound kind of weird to you and I, because how many times a day do we go, mm, I wish I had milk and honey? Well, back then, it was cool. They didn't have Snickers and all that other stuff, right? So, you know, in fact, it's kind of interesting, the little Jewish customs and manners, if you're not familiar with this. The Bible talks about God's word being uh, sweet as a honeycomb. Right? Because, you know, again, they didn't have uh, Snickers and Hershey's. And I'm breaking the cardinal rule. Don't use food analogies late at night. People won't listen to you. Sorry. Sorry, teacher. 
Anyway, so most reason, you know what they would do uh, when they would write down the kids and the students with the law, right? Uh, they would, uh, as they're writing it, they would, they would get to dip it in the honey in the hand because it ruined the tasting of God's law. It's good. Anyway, so kind of cool little thing. But uh, anyway, a little technique. So anyway, so let's get, uh, so that's right. Say, hey, when your kids are doing the homework, right? Get it done, you know, give them a little Snickers. No, let's move on. I digress. Anyway, so, but there's something special about this land. It's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, okay? Even up to the time of uh, Josephus. Josephus was a a Jewish uh, historian, contemporary with the time of Jesus' first coming. Listen to what he said, how incredible this land over there was. Okay, for the Jewish people. He said this, For the whole area is excellent for crops and pasturage and rich in trees of every kind, so that by its fertility, listen, it invites even those least inclined to work on the land. You get that? Pick your laziest person. They come over here and they're going, Man, even if I just drop a few seeds, I'm going to make some serious cash. I mean, this thing is so fertile. It's so easy to make a living here. It's so awesome. That's what he's saying. In fact, he goes on and says, every inch of it has been cultivated by the inhabitants. Not a parcel goes to waste. It's thickly covered with towns. And thanks to the natural abundance of the soil, many villages are so densely populated. In other words, everybody wants to be there. This place is awesome, right? You're going you're gonna to do very well if you come here. So now here's the point. All that changed after 2,000 years. Basically about 2,000 years of foreign conquerors coming to that land, taking over the land. Remember, 14 different peoples ruled that land, right? And they would, they would come in, they would just raise it, right? And they would just uh, cut down all the trees, they would salt the ground, they would mess it up, you know, and that's just part of taking over territory, right? And so it was absolutely ravaged, okay? And now, that's how it used to be. Then the Jewish people got dispersed after the temple, all these people come in, try to take over and destroy it again, try to build it, but it just doesn't ever take off. Destroy it again, they try to, it just doesn't ever take off. Destroy it again, try to take it, it just never. Okay, listen to how bad the land was now before the Jewish people got there in 1948. And this is some actual uh, writings. 1845, this guy named Alphon Lamartine wrote in his books, Recollections from the East. He describes it this way. Outside the walls of Jerusalem, we saw no living being heard no living voice. We encountered that desolation and that deadly silence which we would have expected to find, listen, at the ruined gates of Pompeii. Just a wasteland now. Uh, A total eternal dread envelops the city. Mark Twain, he goes over there in the 1860s. He reports that Israel was a barren wasteland with no trees. He said, quote, the further we went, the hotter the sun got and the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. In describing the territory around the Sea of Galilee, he said it was blistering, uh, naked, treeless land. He spoke of the villages there as ugly, cramped, squalid, uncomfortable, and filthy. Now remember, before the Jewish people got dispersed, this place meant just drop a seed in the ground, you're going to make some gas. And now it's just all messed up. Uh, He added that the villages are a, quote, solitude to make one dreary, unpeopled deserts, rusty mounds of barrenness. Then he looked towards the barren hills of the Judean hills in Israel, and he wrote, quote, close to us was a stream, and on its banks was a herd of curious-looking Syrian sheep, and the sheep were gratefully eating gravel. This is Mark Twain. He said, I do not state this as a petrified fact. I only suppose that they were eating gravel because there didn't appear to be anything else for them to eat. Just a horrible place to be. 1905, the prime minister of the Netherlands goes over there and he said, quote, the Jews have come in vain. Only God can check the blight of this inrushing desert. 
Well, guess what God did as soon as the Jewish people started coming back from the east? Well, it started to respond, okay? The Jewish people began to come back to the land, and they immediately began to work at the land and get it back into shape. And for them and them alone, because other people conquered it, tried to get it back, and it wouldn't respond. Other people conquered it, tried to get it back, it wouldn't respond. The Jewish people get back, guess what happened? The land began to respond. One guy counted uh, in the 1800s, he counted that there were less than 1,000 trees in that whole area, Okay? Uh, as soon as the Jewish people get back, it's what they do. And they still do it today. Massive tree planting repopulation. Uh, the one stat, and I think this is old, 1.2 billion trees uh, in Israel now. Uh, half their trees are forest trees. The other half are fruit trees. Some have said that this has actually helped to increase the rainfall percentage there. Right? They're literally uh, changing the landscape. Uh, Israel, the former desert, right now, is now the breadbasket of the Middle East. And Israel exports fruit all over the world. And speaking of the fruit, it is absolutely huge. It's delicious. It's sweet. All I've ever heard is stories. If you ever want to have the best fruit you ever had in your life, go to Israel and get some fruit there. It's huge. It's massive. Now, the reason why, and I did some research on this, is talk about interesting. Okay? Uh, part of it was because when the Jewish people got back over there, they not only replanted the trees, worked the land again, and I think God blessed it, but they did something that, frankly, we needed to have done here a long time ago. They got really high-tech and they begin to develop high-tech irrigation systems, even desalination plants and things of that nature, much more high-tech than the rest of the world, okay? And still to this day, they're way above, far above anybody on the planet with that technology. Now, it just so happens, okay, that the Jewish people, when they begin to tap into the ground with their new high-tech irrigation systems, okay, and redevelop this well system, there's something very interesting that they discovered about the water over there that they're using to irrigate and produce all this fruit and, and all the kinds of other stuff is it's, it's, called, it's a little bit brackish, is, is what I discovered in the research, brackish. Now, brackish means it's just a little bit salty. Right? You think, well, okay, well, that's not good for the plants. Well, yeah, it's not technically good for the plants. And here's what it does to the plant. It's not so salty enough, like the, the Dead Sea salty or, or Salt Lake City, you know, the lake over there. It'll kill, you're dead, right? Okay, but there's just enough salt into it. Listen to what they said. There's just enough brackish water, salt in the water, that what it does is when the plant receives this water, that they're pumping out of the land there over there in Israel, it makes the plant go into what's called stress mode because there's just enough salt in it to make the plant think, oh no, poison, I'm going to die. And what this does is they said it forces the plant to take all of its energy, forget developing leaves. I've got to invest all my energy into reproduction, i.e. the fruit. And so the brackish water in Israel that they're pumping out makes the fruit I've heard reports not only just huge, but three times as sweet because all the energy is going back there in the land. You know, it's almost like they needed the right people to get back to that land uh, in order for it to respond. Now, that's just the, the land, just a uh, minute. That's just the land. But they also diverted the water from the Sea of Galilee. They channeled it through the sections of the deserts, which is allowed. Guess what the deserts are now doing? Blossoming. What was the prophecy? As a rose in the desert. Now the desert is being filled with an abundance of flowers, so much so that Israel is now a major exporter of flowers and ornamental plants. Now what was it before they got there? After 2,000 years of conquerors? A complete wasteland. What is it today? In the last days, what would happen? Israel would become a nation again in one day. They'd return to the land in the exact order. They'd be united. Their currency would go back to the shekel. And oh, by the way, the, the Mark Twain, this baby's going to be awesome, right? And it's all 
happening today. Now, Lord willing, next week, because we've got a bunch more to go, we're going to talk about current events. Has anybody noticed there's some weird things going on over there now in uh, Israel and uh, with maybe uh, Syria, um, Turkey, uh, mm, this northern power called Russia and Iran. And did you know the Bible says that in the last days, Israel is not only going to become a conflict for the whole world, little bitty Israel. And that's in our news every night. That's being fulfilled before our very eyes. But the Bible also said that Israel is going to have a powerful military. Who's got the most powerful military over there? Israel. Who's got nukes? Who's got, if you listen to some of the reports, advanced technology that you don't want to mess with these people. That might even make some things like we think we're pretty advanced here in the United States. Boy, they got some whopper stuff. Not only that, but the Bible specifically said that there's going to come a war that most people, and I believe too, is going to happen just prior before the seven-year tribulation. It's called the Gog and Magog War, Ezekiel 38 and 39, right? And what's going to happen is you're going to have a massive amount of nations all surrounding Israel with the help of this giant country from the north come against them, and that's going to happen just before the seven-year tribulation starts. Do we see any evidence of that? Folks, that's in the news right now. But that's right. We'll have to wait till Lord willing, next time before we discuss that. Let's go some prayer. Well, hi. This is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. 
The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it. If he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, 
even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.